You're listening to Nine Plus, a research podcast from SETU Ireland. Hello and welcome to Nine Plus. My name is Rob O'Connor. On this podcast, we talk about research that is conducted across the Air University. And today I am speaking with John Nolan. John is the chair for human nutrition research at the School of Health Sciences. And he's the founder and director of the Nutrition Research Centre Ireland, NRCI. And he's also the principal investigator of the Macular Pigment Research Group, MPRG for short. His research group studies the role of nutrition for vision and the prevention of blindness, particularly around age-related macular degeneration, which is one of the leading causes of blindness in the world. They've broadened out their research to studying the health effects of nutrition beyond vision and the eye, and they're now looking at spinning out a campus company soon. John is also a Fulbright scholar and works extensively in the US and something he talks about during the podcast. Uh, It was a great chat. I learned a lot about John's work. But as always, I began by asking John to introduce himself. Yeah, I'm John Nolan, Professor John Nolan. I'm a full professor of the university here at the Southeast Technological University. And I'm the director of the Nutrition Research Centre Ireland. You're also the principal investigator of the Macular Pigment Research Group um, and you work about uh, carotenoid nutrition, uh, omega nutrition, visual performance, nutritional interventional studies, analytical chemistry. I just pulled all this stuff off the website, so I'm just reading (laughs) the shopping list here. Um, How do you separate out all of those things in your head? Well, it's it's, it's listening to you summarise them, it, it, it speaks to one very clear point and that is that this is a multidisciplinary effort so it's not that I do all of those things or I am an expert on all of those things this is um, I think our research has been kind of fundamentally built from this kind of multidisciplinary approach where people with different skill sets whether it's analytical chemistry which is basically you know, working with molecules in the lab, maybe measuring nutrients from foods or measuring nutrients in blood samples and all the way through to people who do statistics or who work with human behaviour or who work with visual functions and cognitive functions. So it's, you know, the, the celebration of the NRCI is in fact that we are able to do research that brings in all of those elements, all of those skill sets. So... Well, talk to me about the work that the NRCI, the National Research, uh, sorry, the Nutrition Research Centre Ireland uh, conducts. So mm. let's imagine I know nothing about this. Yeah. What, what, what are you at? What, what, what have you got an, have you got an overall goal or an overall mission that you're kind of working towards? Uh, absolutely. Our, our overall goal is, do you know when you hear people in health say, be well, eat well, do well, and it's kind of really good information, but also kind of useless. <laughs> and the reason why it's kind of like, we know we should do all of that, right? And then it's up to kind of the adults in the room to help the younger people to figure out what is, you know, what are good foods? How much should we eat? How much shouldn't we eat? To answer your question, what are we about? We're about, in a nutshell, understanding what is good about good nutrition in a way that we can target the the good elements of good nutrition, the good micronutrients of good nutrition to enhance human health and human function. And to do that, we, as you know, specialise in the area of visual function. So can we help people improve their vision? Can we stop people 
uh, developing age-related visual disabilities, such as something as like macular degeneration. And then uh, in recent years, thankfully, we've been able to kind of evolve our ideas into kind of brain nutrition and brain function. But even as I kind of summarise our kind of main mission to you and where we are, we know we're only at the tip of the iceberg in terms of like, like what we can do because essentially all our learnings from good micronutrition where we've been able to demonstrate efficacy ben- benefits in vision and now brain health, we know that we can extend all of that to other parts of the body um, because like we're made up of nutrition and ultimately... And I haven't planned this answer, but I'll just kind of speak as I feel it's 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 comfortable, you know. Ultimately, it's 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 we're dealing with life and we're dealing with aging. So, so what you see is all the the disabilities that we can develop, you know, are kind of focused or concentrated rather towards the end of our life. So we get all our age related illnesses, if you like, at around a certain age. And of course, genetics can predispose you to other conditions earlier on and so on. But the point is, I believe, and our science now supports this, that actually using nutrition, we can positively impact on the aging process and positively impact on diseases connected to the aging process. And we do this, I call this the sunscreen effect. So you know, when we put on sunscreen, when, yeah. you know, in the two weeks that we get sun in Ireland, we put on sunscreen before we go out. I, I, when I'm educating this, no matter if it's to professors or doctors or whoever, I, I kind of use the same analogy. We have the opportunity using targeted nutrition to put sunscreen inside our bodies and locate it at the parts of the bodies where we can protect it. And this mm. is because we can deal with something called oxidative stress. So oxidative stress sounds scientifically complicated but it's actually not so for a cell to survive to, to replace itself to, metab- to to function it needs mm. to use oxygen we metabolise oxygen and that's good they need to do that the cost of doing business with oxygen um, is that you get a production of these molecules called free radicals so free radicals are the same radicals that give you sunburn so something that has energy like the sun um causes a photooxidative damage and that's what can destroy your skin and be very, very damaging. Inside our body, it's no different. As the cells, as the tissues that we, that we need to, to be healthy are metabolizing oxygen, the cost of doing that is that they produce these radicals at that location. And if we do not have enough protection, this sunscreen, this antioxidant inside our body, that cell can get sick. And if that get, cell gets sick, for me, that's the start of all sickness. So you... You've probably heard of something called inflammation. We look at the pandemic and COVID and, you know, what happens is we we get the virus and there's this immune response and we have this inflammation that is really where the problem is and the body trying to fix this sickness. And how I explain this is, is how I explain it to my daughter, Penny, who's eight years old. I say, it's like, you know, when Penny's on the swing at home or on the slide and she falls and she bangs her knee. The impact, the trauma, the insult, that's the oxidative stress bit. So if we can stop penny fall and if we can stop that initial piece, we can stop all the other bad things that follow that, the inflammation and the, and the response to that. So is the, is the idea now, if I'm picking you up correctly, and if mm. I'm being too simplistic, please mm. say so, is that by, by eating well or eating the right f- foods or the right, foods that carry the right nutrients we can protect our bodies against illnesses 
or degeneration that may occur or that is likely to occur as we age. Absolutely. Is that okay? So, so like, because I remember you years ago with the the macular pigment mm. uh, material that you were, or research that you were working on. The idea was there that by by I can't remember the exact food now. It was I'm going to say it was carrots because <laughs> no, I, I'm thinking about please rabbits. Don't say carrots. No, it's Everyone, not carrots. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> but okay, that's a bug's bunny I'm joking. We come back. No, to that. Yeah. But but there's certain nutrients, and by eating by eating well, as well as general health, that there can be a targeted action mm. at specific parts of the body that require these nutrients. And this is this antioxidant that you're talking about. Correct. correct? And you are right to mention carrots because carrots contain these nutrients that we study are called carotenoids. Okay, I call them carotenoids, but carotenoids. That's good to know. No, 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 that's good to know. Yeah. And, um, And actually what we know about them they're really fascinating firstly there's 700 of them in, in nature we would live in a colourless world if it wasn't for carotenoids so carotenoids are what give foods their colour carotenoids are what give birds feathers their colour carotenoids are plant based pigments okay and they're 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 actually really important from the beginning from we exist because of carotenoids because um, photosynthesis was made possible because of the, of their presence um, in plants but what's really interesting about the carotenoids is that there's about from the 700 in nature we've identified that there's about 50 in a typical diet so there's when you eat so carrots you will get a carotenoid called beta carotene from carrots and when you eat um, spinach or peppers you'll get a carotenoid called lutein mm. and they these carotenoids are basically those very potent those very beneficial antioxidants and this is a way that we have evolved to accumulate something good from plant-based foods to go to their target tissues. So what's really interesting of current time and current science and a lot of the work we've been responsible for, Robin, in, in, in Waterford at, at the NRCI NPRG is that we have been able to identify and test the benefit of increasing certain carotenoids. So the carotenoids we work in with are primarily of the eye and these are called lutein. And there's another carotenoid called zeaxanthin. And I don't expect anyone to remember these. <laughs> and there's another one which we're kind of well known for called mesozeaxanthin. But basically, they have um, a, a chemical structure. They have what we call a, um, a backbone of... Hy- so they, they have a lot of hydrogen. So this is what makes them good antioxidants. They can donate, they can donate electrons to molecules that are missing electrons without themselves becoming unstable or reactive or damaged. So that's pretty cool. And in the eye, we know that we concentrate these carotenoids a thousand times more than anywhere else in the body. And I'm a nutritional biochemist. So I did biochemistry, um, applied biology. And I, as part of I did biochemistry here in, in, in Waterford as part of my undergraduate degree. So what was fascinating to me in my earlier works was to say, well, I was asked, interested, intrigued, if you like, by the question, why does the eye accumulate certain carotenoids in the way that it that they do so the challenge though Rob is the healthiest person you know or I know is not consuming enough of these carotenoids right and there's different reasons for that is that because so okay, again no right so I know nothing about this I'm not a biochemist yeah. just a kind of a casual observer okay uh, but I would like to think that I eat reasonably well I'm into my food yeah. I'm into my grub and uh, every chef I ever see on the telly or any cookbook <laughs> I open I always say you should have loads of colour on your plate the more beige food is bad food the more colour you have the better it is um, you hear about this thing the Mediterranean diet you yep. hear about people living in 
Italy and Greece, living long lives, healthy lives. Is 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 it kind of being reductive to say that probably because the food that they're eating has a lot of these uh, carotenoids in it? No, it's absolutely not. Is it? It's, okay, it's, so, it's, so, it's, so there is well actually known. science to this Mediterranean oh, diet. Oh yeah, okay. So much science. Okay. Yeah, I mean, move to another disease, um, cardiometabolic risk, cardiovascular disease. Um, there was a study done actually there was my late friend and colleague uh, Alan Howard who unfortunately passed during the pandemic he's been a fantastic supporter of of the NRCI and, and my chair here at Waterford the Howard Foundation he did early work where he compared the diet from Toulouse in France versus Belfast okay. which was very different you can imagine the different diets and uh, absolute correlation between risk of, of, of uh, heart disease absolute fit, fit, you know, they the double the carotenoid intake in, in, in France compared to Belfast and double the risk of, of heart disease. But there's... there's, there's but it's not just heart disease, n- is it? Because it, no, like you no, could no. say that's cholesterol or fatty yeah. related. But this is also, you're seeing these carotenoids which r- retard cell degeneration. I'm probably using the wrong no, terms. No, it's there. okay. And, and they, they have different mechanisms within okay. the cardiovascular. I mean, they can, essentially, they can reduce the, the buildup of these plaques by, by keeping the systems healthy and, and, and working and, and you know stopping things being oxidised again that's kind of you stop the pipes getting blocked up essentially that's how it works yeah okay um, and carotenoids have, have, have a clear role to play there um, but yeah but I like the, that you mentioned the Mediterranean diet because I think and here's a little bit of prov- this is kind of provocative because the best doctor you'll know today will sit in the chair and tell the patient to rightly about the Mediterranean diet and, and that pyramid that we all uh, yeah. look up to. Um, but I think that's lazy. Okay. Because, you know, you're not eating enough of these nutrients. Um, my children are not eating enough. I'm not. Because we're living longer than we should and we are exposed to more environmental stresses than we were ever before. And we can light, different light environments, different platforms of light. But also... And this is the crucial bit. And this is deep enough now, but I think we should talk about, you know, plants and plant-based nutrition is devolving. So let me explain what that means. Because if you think of like, take tomatoes, I think there's something like we use like, I think it's 0.1% of the potential crops of tomatoes that, that are possibly available. And why is that? Because farming picks the crop of tomato that will grow best in the best environment yeah. to produce the most of these tomatoes. That can, you know, tomatoes have a carotenoid called lycopene, which is very important and very interesting. But anyway, to my point, these good micronutrients that exist in the plants are in the plants for the plant, not for the humans. Yeah. They don't care about the humans. They care about the plants. And the point is, the reason why they're produced and upregulated in plants is to allow plants grow in different environments with competing against all the other type of tomatoes, for example, that can be there. But as soon as we start the farm, which we've had to do by necessity, because um, we need more food for the world. There's a lot more people around than we, than we ever could have imagined. Um, we are producing plants that are underproducing these micronutrients that are valuable. And there's data out from the US Department of Agriculture. And I think within 60 year time period, you would have to increase your uh, spinach was the example they used. I think it's 53 bowls of spinach. Today is equivalent to one bowl. 60 years ago. Wow. In terms of its total nutritional value. So, like, I'm coming wow. to the point where, I, where I'm where i going to tell you I think we need to supplement with rice and safe supplements. That's kind of what our work 
that's what we've been able to do. And I, you know, so I'm known as the supplement guy for different reasons. But, and that present, presents all these other challenges in terms of the quality. And we should talk about that if we have time today yeah. as well. But but honestly, what I'm saying is, yes, our stable, our bedrock has to be good nutrition. And the good advice that the good doctors and healthcare professionals provide throughout the world that's good advice. But I'm saying it's kind of lazy because there's a lot more to it than that. So, for example, if we leave a patient out of the clinic that has high risk of dementia, Alzheimer's disease or who has macular degeneration, age-related macular degeneration and say, eat carrots or eat... That's useless mm. because they're not going to get anywhere near enough the amount. They're probably 20 times away. I think the average <coughs> Irish person is consuming about 1.5 milligrams of lutein and zeaxanthin, these are two of the carotenoids that I work with. And we, with our data shows we need about 20. Right, okay. So I'm saying out loud here, unapologetically, that we, the, the current science and the current time has identified the particular micronutrients within the good foods that are good for us, that are safe, that are effective. And now the goal is to get that to the masses. Mm. And this is where... The work we've done, like our, our famous work at the NRCI is a programme called the CREST trial. This was the, the European Research Council. We made a, we basically, you know, and thanks to many people's work, not just mm. my own, um, and some brilliant scientists that I've worked with over the years, we were able to basically put together a gold standard protocol where we got shortlisted for a European Research Council grant, which is essentially the, the highest profile grant uh, scientists like me can win. And we were, it was atypical because the, they, they were not funding the type of work that we proposed they funded at this time. Mm. And essentially, I remember I spent two years writing this grant. And what I ultimately said in the grant was, look, we can, we've identified nutrients of the macula, of the eye, the macula being that, uh, the back of the eye. So if you think of the eye like a camera. Mm. And the film of the camera is where the magic happens and that's what we call the retina. The centre part of that is called the macula, which is about 4% of the entire film of the camera. And that's what gives us all of our vision. And it's within that special tissue that these nutrients are located. And because of their antioxidant, their sunscreen effect and their light filtering properties, we had enough evidence to say we've identified these nutrients that can A, if we optimise these protective nutrients we can enhance vision for Rob and for John Nolan and for the general population so mm. we can create a new standard of visual quality but remarkably by doing that we can reduce the risk of the world's leading cause of blindness and that's age-related macular degeneration so I remember Rob like when mm. and I remember even like I had great support at the time from the research office from Willie Dolney was the head of research Willie didn't think that this would be funded and it wasn't that Willie was unsupportive he was very supportive he but I believed in the idea so much, I I kept going. And um, Susie Cullinan and others really helped me at the time and uh, really good people of, of, the, of the then WIT, now SETU. And remarkably, we got shortlisted. And I didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. <laughs> Only that I, I realised very soon that I had to go to Brussels and I had to go into a room and I was, I was basically... Um, I think there was about 4% of, of, the, of, the, of the entire applications, thousands of applications, were going to get this unique funding. So I went into the room. I remember I had 10 minutes. I had nine slides. That's all I was allowed. And I had to allow for two questions. And I had to tell that entire story. And I remember feeling 
after it, I remember being, it was really, there was a small room and all these people were there and here I was, you know, a, a guy from Carrick and Shore kind of working in, you know, very proud of the work we'd done in WIT, at, um, really fighting at this top table and mm. I felt, I knew the second I left the room we'd won it and I remember ringing Susie and I said, I think it was Jerry Maguire moment, you know, you know, <laughs> I felt like they show me the money uh, because, and I, I knew that was going to be a, a game yeah. changer. And, yeah. and I have to tell you this though, you know, we won, of course, we won the grant and we ran a very successful programme and we, we were able to add to our skill set of, of, of scientists, some brilliant scientists. Quajo was one of the Ghanaian scientists who came over, came over, did his PhD mm. and, and others. Um, Rebecca Power, who's now a Marie Curie, ended up working on the Crest programme as well. And But our, our, that same idea, that same grant didn't get shortlisted for 50,000 euros in the heart in Ireland from the Health Research Board. And how much did you get from your... We eventually got over 2 million. Right. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. That, there you are. that raises a whole other story, but a whole other set of questions. Well, that's an interesting one about the way research is funded in this part of the world. And I suppose maybe the importance of the EU. Uh, if, yeah. you're not, if, if you're not in that space, you might not know. Often people, the yeah. EU can be an abstract entity and the European Commission can be an abstract entity. Yeah. I, I only had, I was getting my hair cut last week, yeah. uh, which is a rare occurrence, <laughs> yeah. uh, right? Once uh, a year. Well, it's about, it's about three times a year okay. and it's, uh, I make a count if you know what I mean, right? <laughs> and I was chat- chatting away to the barber and he was going on to me about the, the SETU and what, yeah. what, what you do. And I said, well, you know, lots of different things going on, lots of research and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, what kind of research have you going on? So I started talking to him about all this kind of stuff, uh, a whole variety of different research things. I was talking to him about this podcast and he said, God, I never knew any of that was going on. I said, who pays for all that? I said, I said, you know, it comes from a variety of different sources, but a huge amount of it comes from the EU. Yeah. And he had no clue. And there was another fellow in the barbers as well. Not a notion, a notion that yeah. any of this stuff goes on. And it's not that they're, I'm not calling them ignorant people or anything like that. It's just that it wouldn't be on their radar. And mm. why would it? Mm. You know, so well, well, the, the the hairdresser paid for the research. If you yeah, think yeah, it. yeah. You know, oh, it's, exactly. It's the taxpayers' yeah. money. And but what what's fantastic about the the EU mm. is that it's a very fair platform, mm. and that if you're good enough, you win. Yeah, and like while we all celebrate SETU, of course we do, and we should, and we embrace the the, the potential that it presents for us. Really, from a research perspective, you know, the future will tell how how different Ireland becomes in terms of supporting research. And, you know, we need to, and this is going to be kind of provocative, but we need to move away from Waterford and the South East being thrown some scraps from the, you know, the big funding bodies that will fund a few IRCs, which are kind of PhD programmes. Is this the Irish The Irish funding Research ones. Council, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, Science Foundation Ireland. And I know, look, the Walton Institute and TSSG have had great success with those funding bodies. And I'm involved in the Vista Milk program and that's an SFI. So look, it's, uh, but I'm just saying, uh, if, let me put it a different way. If I was dependent and the NRCI and the 25 scientists that have successfully come through and got PhDs, we spent about 8 million of funds. Mm. If I was dependent upon Irish funding for that, we wouldn't exist. So, Okay, so you mentioned there's 20 few, 25 people have come through the NRCI, the Nutrition Research Centre Ireland. Uh, how many people are currently working up there? Okay, so it changes. You're, you're based yeah. up in Carrigan We're based, right? we have a fantastic facility, you know, 
world class facility in terms of uh, we have a vision laboratory, we have an analytical chemistry laboratory, we have um, cognitive function testing. Our PhDs have twenty four seven access to our facility. As I, as we said at the outset here, they're all multidisciplinary. So there's people from there's people from health science, there's people from you know sports performance, there's people from biochemistry, there's people from pharmaceutical science, statistics. Mm. We have one doctor, uh, Dr. Marina Green, who's um, now um, working on research strategy within the centre. She's just finished her PhD with us and she's a medical doctor, left medicine to come and, and um, um, to do her PhD with us and mm. has stayed now an integral part of the, the School of Health Science, which I should say, by the way, the NRCI is within the School of Health Science. So we have like administration, you know, I think we have about 16 people working there every day at the moment. And that changes with with grants, changes with funds. Um, we're funded, Rob, um, primarily from, you know, research, competitive research grants. We have a very good relationship with a foundation, uh, the Howard Foundation UK, as I mentioned, Dr. Alan Howard, mm. um, Julie Howard, um, John Howard, uh, daughter and son, respectfully, and Tom Povey. This is the Howard Foundation. They've been a, a great supporter. Um, we also work very well now and carefully with industry. And I think the future of research is connected to industry. And, and you know... Is this kind of research as a partnership? Is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in, so, for example, we, you know, James O'Sullivan, uh, doctor, I'm not sure if you had James on the show have, yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, he did an episode with us last year. Yeah. He does amazing work at, at the university. And James is a very much a can-do guy. And if you think about it, uh, and what we have to get better at yeah. here at SETU is how we manage the intellectual property. Yeah, so that's just to, in case anybody doesn't know, uh, James is the technology transfer yeah. officer. Uh, Correct. Which even he says is a misnomer. <laughs> it's really an intellectual property yeah. uh, role, yeah. right? but it's just traditionally that was called tech transfer, but it's another yeah. day's work. And there is a podcast, go back through the uh, uh, the archive of 9 Plus and you'll find that. So... Just to, to summarise that, John, yeah. you're saying that there, so there's about 16-ish people working up yeah. there now. All at different stages of their career. So I've, yeah. I, I've, I've some interns I've, who are basically doing their work placement. I have people who have just started their PhD programmes. I have people who are doing their postdocs. Alfonso and Rebecca are doing their postdocs. I have research managers. Mm. Um, I have administration. I have lab technicians. So it's almost like an SME, is it? Do you ever think of it like that? yeah. Yeah, I, I run it like that. Okay, it's the only way to be successful. Okay, yeah. it's, it's you have to you have to run it that way. Okay, um, it's it's an and actually from that we we've just um, about to spin out um, a campus company um, called Supplement Certified, which is kind of happened by mistake, like all good ideas. Maybe um, yeah. it was a research idea back in the day and. Um, Supplements are like essentially what we've kind of got to on this conversation, Rob, is that look, I'm saying nutrition is really good. We've identified the targeted nutrients. We should eat good foods, but there's a role for targeted supplementation, right? And so, so we we partner with um, a Mexican company called um, Industrial Organica, who um, have worked with us now for over 15 years, a family company, Monterey. And what they do for us is they are able to source the carotenoids at high concentration. So when I'm doing a trial, for example, the European trial, that's how we got our, our, our interventions and we were able to get like 20 milligrams as opposed to one from diet into a, into a, a capsule. And, right. and this is what we were able to give patients, for example. 
So um, as part of all of that work, we started to see that not only are these supplements, um, you know, concentrated carotenoids, lutein, zeaxanthin and meso effective for AMD and but then we realised that actually there's a lot to it in terms of how you work with these formulations, how you keep them stable. And in my first experiment, you know, I think we had secured a research grant for over 100,000, which was a lot of money now and was certainly a lot back then. And we had just commenced the experiment. And when we were analysing the supplements, we saw that they weren't what the, the, the company had told us was in them. And we figured out that this was because they were oxidizing. They were, they but they were, were reacting amongst themselves. Yeah, they were yeah. degrading. Okay. They're like, oh, okay. They were degrading. And um, so, in fairness to the company, we stopped the trial. You know, we stopped, um, and they got rid of that. And then they reformulated in a more stable way, where it was in an oil, keeping them stable. And this is where the start of the quality piece. But the supplement certified story is interesting because we then ran an experiment. There was a, a scientist at the time, Etna Connolly, and. She was working with um, lutein interventions and we were comparing it to uh, a formula because the whole idea here is that having all of the three parts of the jigsaw is is a better formula, essentially. And uh, when we were looking at our lutein work, we saw that actually there was this other carotenoid present as well, which we didn't expect to see there. And my default go-to place was, lads, he mixed up the intervention. Let's go back to the paperwork. Let's mm. check, 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 check. And then... It was Alan Howard and others said, well, did you look at the supplement, that the lutein supplement? And when we analysed it, we saw that actually it had the meso piece as well. And this explained the whole kind of what we thought was a scientific um, error. It right. wasn't, it was a fact. And So why is that important? It's important because that was the first point where we realised that A, if you don't formulate them correctly, they're going to degrade. But B, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of the quality and understanding what's actually in the supplement because you know the general population will possibly particularly in Ireland look at supplements as snake oil you know we hear mm. this word and and this is because in my view we do not do enough in regulatory at government level to 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 test or to insist upon testing for uh, quality and label claims so so for example Rob if you go to the pharmacy today and you want to buy a, a vitamin or a carotenoid based on this conversation. Um, when you buy it and it has a pretty picture and it says you're getting B vitamins or mm -hmm. you're getting lutein, you expect that to be there. What I'm telling you is our work has identified that it's not there. Right. So about 80% of the supplements that, you know, people like my mam who will use their last few pounds of the of the month to buy their supplements if, if we can't provide it for or whatever, she deserves to get what she's paying for. Yeah. I use the egg analogy. Would <clears> you leave the supermarket having paid for six eggs with only having four? You wouldn't be happy. You'd go back and say there's two missing. Yeah. So we're very now much deep into the conversation um, and it's been very, very long and difficult. I, we, we published um, some, some work, actually it got news attention in Canada and it was on the equivalent to CNN, CTV News and they ran a whole big story which went out in Canada during the pandemic and essentially highlighting Alfonso's work and Tommy Power's work um, showing that a lot of these supplements do not meet their label claim. So Health Canada then looked at it as an investigation. And I'm telling you all of this because because of all of this, Alfonso, myself and other members of the team and 
we've got we've got help from James O'Sullivan as well. Mm. We 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 realise that there's a great opportunity for us to use our ability to measure these supplements to provide that service for any food supplement company that are selling these particular nutrients, carotenoids or omega three fatty acids. Okay, so the idea is that a company with let's say I had a company, yeah. Right? Rob's tonic. Yeah. Okay, whatever it is. And I say it has X, Y, and Z in it. Yeah. I can go to you and say, right, I'm saying this is X, Y, and Z in it. And you can do, I'm assuming, a scientific random sample mm. on the product, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And come back to me and say, it has this much X, this much Y, this yeah. much Z Correct. in it. Okay, great. Uh, and the reason why that's important is... Well, it's trust. Le, 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 and it's trust and it, it's assurance, it's quality. Go Take a step back. You and I, Rob, could set up a supplement company today. Mm. And we could source our material from whoever that sells it, you know, and we could put a p- pretty label on it. And as long as we don't break the rules of the Food Safety Authority of Ireland, which is don't make claims, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. No one actually, you provide what's called a cert of analysis. Now, the, the raw material provider will provide you and me a cert of analysis. Of course they will, they're selling it to us. Yeah. And that's enough to get us into the pharmacy. Believe it or not, right? And what I and I've spoken to the Food Safety Authority. I've spoken to government about this. I'm actually meeting them very soon, because the Food Safety Authority feel that they're working within their remit. That they're, you know, they're, it's not really their remit to be doing testing as long as the labelling is in order. They're happy. So I've gone back to the government, and um, they're, I'm, they're they have engaged um, food and food food and food supplements uh, department. It's within health, of course. And um, I'm go- they've asked for a report and Alfonso and Tommy are doing a report at the minute um, where we're basically randomly selected, um, I think it's 15, 16 samples, supplements from Ireland and we're going to report that in the coming weeks and months. And once we go with that, what, sh- what, what I hope, to, what I have to do, and everyone's telling me I'm wasting my time, but I want to change legislation. Okay. Because health claims are one thing and we talk, in Europe, you have to have what's called EFSA, the European Food Safety Authority. They can decide what's a health claim or not. For me, that's that's fine. But the reality is, if Rob's Tonic yeah. company is making money by selling something, Rob's Tonic et al. Limited need to be responsible for what they're selling. Yes. And the only way they'll be responsible if, is if they're made be responsible. Okay, so this is the whole thing about self-regulation is no regulation. Is, is, exactly which, which right. Is a very good way of putting so it. So many yeah. different avenues yeah. of things. Okay, so, so yeah. we've started. You know, the, um, you know, as I said, James has worked really hard with with our team, and the good thing about this is a lot of, uh, for full disclosure, while a spin out company, I'm not sure if your listeners will understand, but it's something that the university has to do more of. It's where you manage this mm. intellectual property, these discoveries whereby it can be controlled and that the university becomes a beneficiary. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And also the good news for this um, is that you'll be able to invest much more money back into the facilities, into the services, into the people that mm. are working there. So it's a it's a different type of model as opposed to just maybe another way to work with intellectual property within research is to license it. So let's just say we discover something and the university does that. You know, James manages all that from our centre where any of our discoveries, John Nolan doesn't own anything, by yeah. the way, either does Alfonso. We, within our research, within our employment contracts and our research contracts, we assign, um, now we can be inventors, mm. but people don't understand what that means either. It's kind of interesting. You can be an inventor and own nothing mm-hmm. because the intellectual property is where where the you know, the the golden sauces, if you like. And rightly so, the university owns that. And rightly so, the university will license that. And what James is doing 
and needs help to do better, I believe, is to to really capitalise on that for the university. You look at what happens in Trinity and mm. Cambridge. I mean, they're, they're self-funded from this biz, business model. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, there's a commercialisation committee that works really hard at the university here to try and govern and manage all of that. But um, yeah, very happy. I think we're doing very well at the NRCI. To, and, and that is why we are very kind of supportive of particular supplements, you know. Mm. You know, you... I'm not going to ask you to name any right now because... Yeah, no, uh, no. But, um, but I, want, I, want to, I want to change tack ever so slightly, okay? And I want to bring you all the way back. Okay, so... So here we are talking to John Nolan and you're talking about the the NRCI, 16 odd people working there, 25 PhDs haven't gone through the place, talking about setting up a campus company, uh, your Fulbright Scholar, which we haven't kind of talked about, we might get to before the end of the podcast. But if I talked to 18 year old John Nolan or even 21 year old John Nolan and I said all of this to him, what would you say back <laughs> I couldn't believe it's true. Okay, so you mentioned that you did biochemistry yeah. as an undergrad. Well, I did. did I, d- I did general science. Oh, general science. Sorry. And then I did. Um, and I didn't. You know, science wasn't my first choice. Okay, so did you always? I thought that was going to be your next week. Did you always know you wanted to be a scientist? Not really. Okay, right. Grand. And my science teacher, probably Nick Casey, <laughs> kind of didn't think maybe I should have. <laughs> yeah. um, I wasn't top of the class at all in in, in school. Um, and I had when I came to Waterford, you know, I had um had a scholar had a trial actually with John O'Shea. Oh yeah, the I went on the player. train with John O'Shea to to UCD, and he captained blue team. I captained red team. Is this for Manchester United. This was no for UCD. Oh, UCD. So jo- sorry, when yeah. John was in school and I was in school, we and we were getting ready because remember John finished his leaving cert. That's right, in, yeah, Manche- in yeah. De La Salle, yeah. And he was, you know, from a fantastic family, John, and um, they were very they they believed in education, so he was setting all possible platforms up if the other things didn't work out. So John, John and I went to UCD and. Um, he played me off the park. <laughs> of course, I didn't get a kick actually, um, but so I came home pretty devastated. So I didn't get UCD. That was my that was my first hope to do sports science up there on a scholarship for soccer because I played a lot of soccer at that time with yeah. Carrick United. Um, so you know, science in in Waterford was my was my second choice, and yeah. So I came down and you know I came down with two two guys from my class, um, Ian Marr and. Nicholas O'Gorman, two great guys and both doing very well for themselves now. And we we kind of went on our undergraduate journey together, travelling up and down from Carrick and Shore every day, sharing the the driving facilities, <laughs> taking their dad's cars and so on. Yeah. Um but you know what? How grateful am I to to wit for um what Kieran Byrne called a ladder of progression. I think it was a very way, good way to put it. Okay, so what's that? What's the ladder so, of so progression? So for me like you know, it's one in science. I was in in science. You you didn't you kind of could start with general science, and if you were to do well, you can kind of go and do your diploma. And if you were to do well in that, you can go do your degree. And that's kind of the the pathway I'm took. Now I'm not saying if I signed up for a direct degree in UCD or Trinity or even in what that I wouldn't have succeeded. I, I probably would have. But I what I'm trying to say is that the, the kind of stepping stones, the building blocks that the Waterford provided for me really suited me. And yeah. I came from being a very average student in school to, you know, I got distinctions as part of my science um um 
which was remarkable and something just changed you know with very good lectures um but something changed in how I how I looked at education you know I suffered you know really in school with um I was borderline dyslexic right and I I just couldn't grasp the teaching methods of 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 school and you know I ended up then kind of really just wanting to kind of continue in science and I got a job actually in third year um, in a food factory making barbecue sauce believe it or not testing microbes Right. and you know they didn't want me to leave but I wanted to go back and do my degree and then when I finished they wanted to they wanted to support my masters but there was a PhD advertised Orla Donovan who's head of um, department of science now and uh, and uh, Stephen Beatty was the uh, a retinal surgeon who came to Waterford that time, and they had got funding. Stephen had got funding from Fighting Blindness Ireland, and <clears throat> I applied for that PhD, and um, I won it. And uh, we, it's just kind of scaled from there, you know. And uh, the naivety was a brilliant, big part of that. So, so would I be right in saying that? Okay, so you didn't get this thing in UCD. You were you, you really wanted to do sport, yeah. play soccer, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Okay. <laughs> then, okay, look, fall back, I'll go in. I can do this science diploma down in Waterford and see where I go from there. Might, might be able to play soccer in the meantime or something like that. And then as you worked your way through the course, you found out that actually there was something here that switched on inside you. Yeah, correct. And then one thing led to another. Which led to another, which led to another, which led to another. Yeah. So the idea of eighteen-year-old John Nolan or eighteen-year-old anyone sitting around and having a plan is yeah. nonsense. Nonsense. Yeah. My brother picked me up off the ground. I was on the Clonmel Road, and I when I my leaving, I can't even remember what I got, but it wasn't fantastic. Um, and I thought like, because I'd worked really hard, by the way, Rob, that's one thing I'd say. I worked really hard for my under, I, I studied actually with Dermot Keyes can, can vouch for it. Uh, <laughs> Dermot Keyes, the journalist. The journalist. Yeah, okay, Dermot yeah, yeah. was so clever in school. Um, but Dermot and I studied together actually and helped each other with different things and we worked our backsides off. And, but Dermot was a great supporter for me in school actually as well. But yeah, I didn't, didn't, didn't deliver actually. So I had no plan. But what I had was... I had fantastic support from my family, mm. my brother, Ray, um, my parents. And they didn't have a plan for me either, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. A, you know, it was a very much working class family. My mum had a sweet shop in Carrick and Shore. My dad um, was a carpenter, lost his job in the 80s because the recession then. Mm. So like it was what it was, you know. Yeah. Um, but I had, I had, and I had great grandparents as well. Um Michael Power, who granted always supported me with school and education and instilled in me the importance of education. It was probably because of him that I really saw the value in that. So anyway, yeah, there was no plan, but there was, there was an honest approach and there was hard work. And I think even now when I'm looking at PhD students coming in, I typically don't want the person that thinks they're the cleverest in the room. It's the person that I think is the most, is the honest, has the most honest uh, attributes and that I believe will I think honesty and hard work will take you much further than you can get good at things you know what I mean yeah and yeah you need a skill set you need to have a passion as well and that's the other thing to find like being good at sport or being good in, in, in college or university or doing your postgrad you have to enjoy it mm. 
and you have to find that passion. So there was no plan, but there was opportunity and Waterford created that opportunity for me. And of course, I worked hard on it. And and then, you know, we had a little room, Rob, um, smaller than the room you and I are in now, where we where we ran our first study for fighting blindness. And I remember got in trouble because I painted it myself. <laughs> right, <laughs> it was okay. so bad I needed to. And I brought in the equipment. But we analysed over a thousand people in that room. Yeah. And those thousand people were the platform to all our knowledge, the bedrock, our first ever publication where we identified that people who are at risk of a disease macular degeneration had a deficiency in these particular macular carotenoids which we spoke about today. And I just, the visions became clear then, you know, the Fulbright you mentioned, I went to... Um, well, actually, let's talk mm, about that, right? So okay. let's imagine, I don't know what Fulbright is. Mm, either what, I. What, okay, but yeah, so so mm. you're working away here. Somebody, I'm assuming somebody said something to you about, you should apply for a Fulbright. Yeah. And you probably said, Fulbright, is that a bulb to put in my Kieran room? Byrne. Okay, so what is Fulbright? So the Fulbright is a, is basically, it goes back to J. William Fulbright. He was senator and it was promoted... Um, to, to, at the time, post-Second World War, to internationalise, to bring exchange students, to bring people from different par- other parts of the world to the US and vice versa. Mm. And that was, so it's 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 a very prestigious scholar. It's up there with Rose Scholar, you know, it's, um, and so, yeah, I was in, I was in the last few months of my PhD and I still had patients to recruit, data to analyse. I was doing analytical chemistry on, on the blood samples and so on. I still had all this work to do. I was going to an American conference and Kieran Byrne knocked on my door. Um, so he would have been the president, president. of WIT at the time. Yeah. yeah, and he said, you should consider this, John, he said. Why don't you come and have a cup of coffee with me and I'll tell you about it. So I did. And um, Stephen Beatty at the time... Um, supported it as well so this is the he was the, the surgeon, surgeon the, the yes. retinal doctor who yeah. had won the funding originally from fighting blind in Ireland yeah and um, and they said look this is and I didn't know what this was and actually I was a bit overwhelmed because I thought you know I have enough to be doing to finish my PhD and da, da, da. but anyway we, we we did it and we won again I was in that scenario in Dublin where I went for the interview and it just worked. Yeah. And I won it. And it's not like financially a very good scholarship. You know, I had to actually get a loan. My grandfather gave me a loan. <laughs> I think it was a credit union. Uh, right, stepped okay. in. Um, I think we got over the, you, you get some money, enough to kind of get you over there um, and enough to pay a, a basic salary, I think. Um, but like when I look at, I think it was like 11,000 or something like that right. over the whole programme. And that was for everything, flights, accommodation, Fees, you can name yeah. it. So you're, it, it you're, sounds like a lot of money to somebody who doesn't have a lot of money. But if you're traveling back yeah. and forth to the states and yeah. accommodation, you yeah. burnt it off very quickly. I'd very imagine. quickly, yeah, I yeah. think. I so you, you kind of just had enough to live, which yeah. is fine. Um, and so yeah, so basically that happened, and I went over. I could have gone anywhere in the world with this, by the way. So that was that was part of the. I had to, and I was reading the scientific papers in my field and. There was these people that I looked up to, you know, um, the likes of Max Snodderley, which is ultimately who I went to. He was based in Augusta, Georgia, down south. And then um, there was um, uh, Paul Bernstein and others. So I considered them all. Yeah. Long story short, I, I decided to go and work with Max, who was the pioneer in our field. And um, so it was interesting because I had to bring my Viva date forward by a couple of months in order to take up this scholarship, which I did and um, successfully passed my Viva. Um, I passed my Viva on a Wednesday 
and I was on an airplane on a Friday to the US. Right, okay. And <laughs> totally like green to all of this and thinking, yeah, America, I had this idea I was going to land in America and be in New York, you know, but I didn't realise I was going to Augusta, Georgia, which is very different. Yeah. And I had what's called an unfurnished apartment, which clearly said unfurnished, but I didn't think what that meant and so on. So I ended up landing in Atlanta airport, which is about two and a half hour drive from Augusta. And I remember there was a storm, it was lashing. So I, and my girlfriend then, now my wife Jane, had helped me kind of set up the transportation. I had one of these shuttle buses that I was on with my life in two suitcases. <laughs> and I landed in Augusta, Georgia, in a place um, at the medical college. And my my uh, campus accommodation was right beside the projects. Yeah. I'm not sure if you know what the projects yeah, yeah, are. It's, it's but like the housing estates. Housing yeah, estates, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So I didn't know what they were. So look, it was... I that weekend changed my life because I, I was lonely. I was, um, didn't know what to do. I didn't, I wanted to go home basically. I had no apartment. I had no furniture. I had no car. But within a weekend, it's probably a beer talk, but I, I, I sorted it all out. I went to these rent-a-centre place, got my furniture, you know, worked through the night to get my little apartment set up, was ready for work on Monday. Yeah. But that was the best life experience, not the education over there, not the having, and that was great. And we published all the papers, but that for me gave me a life lesson. It expand, would you say it expanded your horizons? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 It, it, and I was so grateful, though, kind of to come through that. Yeah. To come through that experience. And, and that's what I say to any kind of student listening to this or anyone thinking, can they do this or can they do research? It's, you know, I just. The, we have two people from our facility. Um, Rebecca Power is over in 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 um, Illinois at the moment. Uh, she won a very successful project, uh, Marie Curie. So she did her PhD at the NRCI, now doing Marie Curie. And Warren Roach, who um, just finished his own PhD, doc, Dr. Roach, he's now um, on a, scholar, a postdoc as well. And speaking to them, I can see a lot of similarities, you know. You, you've, you can't visualise what's ahead of you. But, but the life experience that they're getting now will mould them, I believe, into become really uh, brilliant uh, opinion leaders if they so choose to within their field. Isn't that the the importance of experience? It's kind of like that like, I don't know if you ever saw The Matrix that film The Matrix. Yeah. I'm not talking about Red Pill Blue Pill or anything, <laughs> but there's a thing in it where your man Morpheus says to Neo he says you know like nobody can tell you about The Matrix you just have to experience it for yourself. Yeah. Now is that true of so many of these research journeys is that you can kind of tell yourself one thing but until you've done it, it's not the same. It's not the same. Mm. And the other thing it teaches you is like, so right now I look at, I look at the vision for the future for NRCI and SETU and there's lots that, in my view, that needs to change in their research environment. Mm. And But you also realise that the grass isn't always greener as well. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No matter the name of, I've been at UCSD, I've worked there in a secondment, I've been at the medical college. The same challenges that researchers um, kind of encounter kind of are global. Yeah. Um, research is a very lonely place. You know, I, you get the, the joy of being a researcher or working on what you love every day and working with people that you want to work with. But at the university here currently today, the research environment is, doesn't feel very stable. Mm. Um, and we have, you know, Mark is doing great work and I have great support from the head of school, you know, John Wells. And 
that's there. But I think we're at a really unique time now um, with the university where we can kind of improve the research environment, things like contracts. Yeah. For, for science, like how do you support a scientist who's committed, who's moved from Spain, who's taken that risk, who's been so successful, who's published, who's spun out a company, who's created intellectual property? Mm. They don't have a contract. Yeah. Really, that's more than anything. So is this kind of like the idea that if I was in admin or I'm a lecturer, so I have a lecturer scale and I yeah. know kind of where I yeah. am roughly on that scale and, and, and that's that. And same if he's working in admin or yeah. a technician or something like that. But in the researcher side, I think there's nothing like that. No. In yeah. fact, we have the opposite. You know, okay. we have, so how, <laughs> what's we, the opposite? We, we have a, a paragraph in our contract of indefinite durations, if you're lucky to get one, that says your position is dependent on funding. Okay, yeah. Now, yeah, the yeah, counter-argument yeah, yeah. to that, if you speak to HR, which I've done, they'll say, well, you know, every contract is dependent upon funding, you know, yeah. even a permanent. But why have the clause in there then? Yeah, yeah. It, legally it doesn't stand up anyway. That's another day's work. Yeah, well, I'm not a legal person, so yeah. I'm not going to argue yeah, yeah. for or against because yeah. I haven't a clue. But, 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 and it's not that I'm blaming anyone. It's yeah, just yeah, the current situation that needs to be changed. If, 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 if Niall O'Reilly are... Ramesh or Kevin or any of these people want and they, we all feel the same by the way I can't speak for them because they're mm. not here beside me but I know you know we want to create a platform that's safe for our researchers for our postdocs and for the future that's stable and fair Yeah. and yes we have to work and yes we have to bring in funding of course we do otherwise we're not doing our job but right now it's not right Yeah So is this a hangover from kind of the old RTC IT, I believe days. so. Okay, yeah. Whereas, is this is this lack of a research contract present in the traditional universities? No. Okay, right. Okay, so that's a challenge then for mm. SETU to. Yeah, and to everyone's face. aware of it. Okay. Um, and I believe that we have, I believe that, you know, our head of research will will cares about it actually. Okay. You know. Um, but yeah, and look, in in fairness as well, a lot of this will have to be governed by what national says. Okay, a lot yeah. of these, but like pensions and all these issues that human beings rightly have. Yeah, you know, researchers now, postdocs don't have pensions. Right. <laughs> can you imagine okay. that they they can work and they don't? They're not entitled to one at the moment. Right. Okay. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah, and they're talking about an, uh, uh, a national auto enrollment pension scheme. And even uh, with the, even yeah. though with the grants that we win, Rob, that where you get the funding off the government for a pension, we do not have a we do not have a facility at the moment to cater for that for for research. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's a challenge then for the future, isn't it? It's well, for now. For now, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Because because we we will lose our best researchers. Why would they? We've already seen some drain of 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 talent of people. For these, for these exact reasons and we can yeah, you know we can hide behind it or we can say look this yeah. is a, how we're going to fix this collectively and as a community as a, as a university mm. I think we have an appetite to do it but it has to happen yeah I have one final question for you John and you've kind of answered it already but I'm going to ask you again just in case there's something else there so I've asked this of pretty much everyone who's been on this podcast if you had somebody sitting in front of you who was uh, either an early stage researcher or somebody who was thinking about getting into research and they asked you for a bit of advice, what would it be? Okay, this is really important. The bit of advice is to make a decision 
and make that decision work. Stay focused on it. Sometimes in research, so even with me with nutrition, every conference I go to, people, can you look at this? Can you look at this? Can you do this? No. We, we want to be the best in the world at studying the carotenoids for the eye and brain. That's what we want to do. That's all we can do. And even at that, we'll never get anywhere near the knowledge that we need to. So, so there is no one right decision. You know, I believe there's many different roads that a human can go on with a career or, and research the same. Um, follow the evolution of, of, of what your science delivers for you. Stay focused on your idea. Do not get distracted by the things that don't matter. And get your wins, your early wins. But believe, like, it. I would also say to people listening that if you think that the only person that can, you know, do what Rebecca Power has done or do what Warren Roach or even what I've done in terms of the position we've ended up in is the, is the person that's like so, so clever and has all the, that's wrong. It's actually the other person. It's the person that wants to work hard at it um, and that finds a way to enjoy what they do. That's what I say to my team. If you don't enjoy Monday like you do Friday evening, you're in the wrong place. Mm. So you have to find that niche and stay focused on that. Well, that's a lovely way to end it. Brilliant. John Nolan, uh, if somebody wanted to find out more about you, where should they go? So I have my own website, profjohnnolan.com um, and the NRCI um, has its own website. We're actually working to improve it. But my own website has a lot of, all. we have 110 plus peer-reviewed scientific papers and they're all open access available on my website for anyone that's interested to look at that. And, and you'll see... Um, also, you know, anyone that wants to know, anyone of the university that wants to kind of come and learn more, the team at the NRCI are always open to kind of facilitate discussions and explain what we're doing. We've had great success with interns of late progressing very nicely. So, yeah. Brilliant. And that's uh, nrci.ie yeah, is the website, profjohnnolan.com. And I'm sure if you, you know, Google search will <laughs> bring you up the right way as well. Correct. John, thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 9 Plus. If you'd like to keep up to date on future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at 9 Plus Podcast. That's digit 9 PLUS Podcast. Or you can find us on the setu.ie website. And we'll be back with another episode soon. Listener.